1: Hello and welcome to this episode of the Irish Economics Podcast. Today I'm joined by Peter Lunn of the ESRI to discuss behavioural economics and behavioural science. This is our second episode dealing with behavioural science. Some of you may remember our discussion with Liam Delaney, where we went through the foundations of this field and we went through some of the concepts uh, related to behavioural science. So I would urge you to check out that conversation if you have not done so already. Today's conversation builds on that foundation to discuss the application of these tools. Uh, Pete and his team at the SRI are responsible for a lot of cool research that tries to understand how we make decisions as individuals, so how we weigh up the pros and cons of our credit card plan or how we decide who to buy our electricity from. They use insights from economics, psychology and other fields to fully understand the decision making process. More recently, his team have done some very important work in relation to COVID-19 and how we can encourage social distancing. So we we discussed that also. For the non-economists, I should probably insert a bit of an explainer in here. Uh, at one stage, we get stuck into debating the neoclassical economic framework. Uh, we don't fully explain that, but when discussing individual decision-making, it might be useful to think of it as... Someone who is making a decision with good information and good understanding of what they're dealing with. Basically, somebody who can make perfect decisions. Economists often see the world as functioning correctly if we can all push people towards that sort of a model. Um, Having this level of perfect information and understanding and therefore an ability to make good decisions. Behavioural scientists, of course, can see the barriers that can stand in the way of achieving this perfect outcome. And we debate the pros and cons of either perspective at a later stage of the discussion. Before we kick off, a reminder that if you enjoy this or other episodes in the series, I've set up a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash pod, where you can buy a coffee to say thanks. My thoughts are when, as an economist, one thing I think of for economists is you have a very specific way of looking at the world and analytical framework when it comes to making decisions and how, How does that differ from your perspective as maybe somebody who comes at things from a neurological background, but also an economics background? Or is there a difference?
2: Uh, Yes, there's a very large difference. So economists view the world largely as if to a first approximation, people will pursue their own self-interest in a rational manner. Um, That is an approximation. Um, in my view, it's not really a very accurate one. There are some circumstances where it works and it provides good models. There are some circumstances where it's not going to work and it provides poor models. Um, COVID-19 is the perfect example of that because we're all caught up in what essentially are multiple giant public goods games or coordination problems where we're actually relying on people to do the right thing even when it's not in their own self-interest. And one of the remarkable things, and I still find it remarkable even though I know the science of it very well, is... People's willingness to undertake sacrifices for the greater good if they believe everybody else is trying to do the same thing and they feel like they're in a common group that's trying to achieve something. uh, That's what human beings do, they pull together. And there's psychological evidence that shows that they even do that more during times of crisis. Now, of course, I don't want to build up some kind of economic straw man here. I mean, economists have known this for some time, and the people who've run experimental public goods games have actually generated very consistent, highly replicable and reproducible results that have been hugely useful in this pandemic, because we know some of the factors that drive cooperation in these kind of coordination problems, in these kind of public goods games. And we know that from the experimental economics work that's been done, as well as from the psychology. So where economics and psychology work best, actually, is where you can see commonalities between the two literatures. Um, that give you a lot of faith that even if you go at it with different methods you're essentially getting the the same outcome and you can see from a policy point of view you've got a finding that you can rely
1: on. Absolutely that was an interesting uh, comment you made about the collective action issue and it seems one thing I found very encouraging about the whole COVID-19 issue is that people tend to be working for the greater good and they're taking into account the, the social value of their actions which perhaps we don't see in other examples and Is it a case of the fact that the benefit, the social benefit is very salient and therefore we can take that into account in our decision making? I think of it in the context of, say, climate change, where there is this collective action problem also, but it's very much a long run issue. Is there any sort of psychological background to that?
2: Yes, there is. So we know in collective action problems that in order to solve the problem, in order for people to behave in the way that they need to and make the sacrifice they need to for the common good certain things need to be in place and the things that need to be in place are you've got to have a common understanding and communication of why the behavior that you are asking everybody to undertake is the best behavior for all in other words people need to understand the game that they're in the structure of the situation they're in well enough that they can see that there's a particular behaviour that if everybody does it, the collective outcome will be better. And there needs to be clear enough communication as to what that behaviour is and why it's good for everybody. Now, in the case of COVID-19, it became pretty apparent that social distancing was going to be absolutely vital to reduce this very large peak of infections and consequently the danger to the health system. And I think that's an argument that everybody got. Um, at least the very large majority of the population in many countries got more so in some countries than others. and We can talk about that if you like, because the explanations for that are probably interesting. But everyone could see the structure of the game that they were in, and what the previous uh, research would tell you is that if that's true, a lot of people will go after the social best outcome. They'll realise, look, if we all do this, well, let's all do this, and we, we, we can get here. Um, So the psychology of it is partly about communication and clarity of the situation that you're in when you're in these social dilemmas. We also know that it's partly about group identity, though. Um, So the stronger the group identity, and that doesn't have to be really strong. In fact, one of the things that's remarkable about some of the research in this area is you even give participants in public goods games 10 minutes to have a cup of coffee with each other, and they cooperate more afterwards. Um, People very quickly build up. You know, a feeling of being in something where as a group of human beings, they're trying to achieve a particular outcome and you don't have to identify with people much to start behaving that way. It's a very strong human instinct. Um, now, of course, in climate change, that's much more difficult because you're trying to do it on a global level with people you don't know and you might not trust. I mean, you know, we're in a mi- mighty public goods game on climate change with all other countries in the world, including regimes we like and those we don't like and ones you know, we're more familiar with and people are less familiar with. Trying to get that coherent action is much harder. And furthermore, there isn't really agreement on what the common best action for everybody is. I mean, you know, it was pretty straightforward in COVID-19. What well, the, the thing you needed to do was, which was stay at home, and still to a large extent is. Um, and we could all agree that we could see why that would work, and we could agree why that would make a better social outcome for all. And with climate change, life is much more complicated than that, as you know.
1: Absolutely. And you touched on something there that I heard that, was it research that you carried out that, the, the understanding that the effect that if, if you emphasise the emotional effect and the effect it has on maybe elderly relatives, that this can have a greater buy-in and maybe that, that touches on that sort of community effect. Um, and you even see around in Ireland, GA groups getting involved and, and that builds on that sort of community that's there um, to try and, uh, and tackle the issue.
2: Yes. Yeah, so then you get into some deeper psychology Um, So some of the work that we've done on motivating social distancing has a much deeper psychology to it, um, which would be real psychology rather than economics, I would argue. So um, George Loewenstein in the late 1990s came up with the the idea of the identifiable victim effect, which is if you put people into a situation where uh, you are requiring them or you, you want them to behave in a way that is sympathetic, that helps out others. If the person they're trying to help out is not described statistically but is an identifiable individual, even if it's someone they don't know, uh, if you just give them information, you know, it is a person who is 70 years old or it's a granny or it's a healthcare worker or whatever, you know, you just give them an identifiable image in their head of who their behaviour might affect that that is effective, that it makes them more sympathetic towards the individual, even though the individual is an abstract entity, whether they're just a statistical number or whether you've got somebody to imagine an individual. And sure enough, we found that. I mean, we were pre-testing communication materials for the Department of Health where we were looking at persuasive messages on social distancing. And some of those messages tried to leverage the identifiable victim effect Um, by pointing out, oh, if you don't social distance and you get infected, you might then infect a vulnerable person. And those messages turned out to be more effective than just informational messages about the importance of keeping two metres apart in an experimental setting that, that we set up. And that's the identifiable victim of fate in action. Now, I think that's quite deep psychology, actually, <laughs> that once you start actually having a representation of an individual in your mind, it changes your moral sense, which uh, is what that experiment essentially shows, building on what George did over 20 years ago.
1: So you've, you have mentioned there you did work on trying to figure out well, what is effective in encouraging social distancing. Were there other behavioural concepts that were important in that regard that uh, would be interesting to discuss or that would be perhaps interesting going forward considering we're at this stage of of the pandemic?
2: Yeah, so I mean, the other effect that we tested in that particular experiment where we were looking for persuasive messaging with social distancing was trying to combat the exponential growth bias as well. Now, that's better known to economists because it's one of the reasons people underinvest in pensions. People don't understand intuitively exponential growth. Um, So we know that they underestimate. I mean, we've done studies like this in our lab where we ask people how much they're likely to have if they invest money at a particular return over a number of years. And they will always underestimate the compounding of interest. Now, just as they underestimate the compounding of interest, they will underestimate how powerful one infection can be in a change of infections where there's an R0 of higher than one, where, you know, two people affect two others affect two others. And before you know it, you've got an enormous number. People under it, they don't intuitively understand those relationships. And if you point them out to them, uh, which we did again in this experiment to try and combat that exponential growth bias, so you get across the idea that um, if you don't keep your social distance and get infected, you may be responsible for infecting dozens of other people because you're going to give it to someone else, you're going to give it to someone else, and so on. If you do that, that messaging is quite persuasive too. Now, largely, that's a cognitive effect we're talking about there, where you're changing people's cognitions about what causes what and how they think about, um, quite mechanically, how in, their behaviour affects others. But there's also, obviously, an emotional element to that too. I mean, if you think you might be responsible for infecting three others who infect three others who infect three others, uh, you know that's probably going to invoke an emotional as well as a cognitive reaction if you hadn't thought of it quite that way before. So, yeah, we've, we found that that was effective too.
1: Absolutely. No, that's uh, very interesting. And then moving on, then you had work on um, fatigue and maybe ex- expectations about emerging from the lockdown. Um,
2: yeah, we did. We, got, yeah, we thought it was really important to measure expectations properly. Um, so there were some tracking surveys that were saying, you know, when do you expect restrictions to be lifted? But the public are a bit more sophisticated than that. I mean, they understand that there are some restrictions that could be lifted quite quickly and there were going to be others that gonna take a lot longer. So we did a much more uh, in-depth study of what the public expected, where essentially, I mean, it was partly just like a survey where we asked them about multiple different restrictions, you know, the schools, the restaurants and pubs, when parks would reopen, when it would be okay to go more than two kilometres. So we asked about separate restrictions, and we gave people different options for responses where they could say, oh, that'll happen in May, it'll happen in June, it'll happen before the end of August, before the end of the year, and so on. So we just measured each restriction in a more sophisticated way but the other thing we did is we use these interactive online environments to do our experiments where we can have people do things like ranking tasks which we did so we gave them a whole list of restrictions and they could they could literally just use their mouse to rank them and then check their ranking and make sure they're happy and we got them to say what they thought was likely to be lifted first what they thought should be lifted first um, what would have the biggest impact on their lives um, and it was a very interesting study, actually. We weren't sure what it would throw up. But what it made you realise is that the Irish public were actually probably remarkably patient um, and had built a rather sensible expectation. So it turns out that their expectation for when the restrictions were going to be lifted is somewhat slower than the government's roadmap that was published the week after we did this study. Uh, Which is probably uh, a quite impressive example of wisdom of crowds, I would argue, because, I mean, who knows what's going to happen with the roadmap, but everything going slightly slower than the government first imagined is probably quite a good guess. Um, And we could see that that's what they were thinking on average. The other thing that's so interesting about that was what they thought should happen and what they thought would have the biggest impact on their lives. We saw disjunctions there where people said, I mean, the best example was the restaurants and the pubs, where they said, look, you know, reopening the restaurants and the pubs would have a big impact on my life, on my quality of life. But when it came to should it, where should it be done? They dropped it way, way down the rankings. Mm. And this is an example of people being absolutely willing to make a sacrifice that they know is having an impact on their lives because they know in the bigger picture, it's the better thing to be doing. And that it's more important that other things open first and things that are more essential for, you know different people open first and you can see that in the way they organized what they thought should happen sure um so you got a real sense that they understood the problem on average of course uh they understood the problem very well um and were more than happy to play the long game to try and get us out of this which i thought was very interesting finding
1: absolutely very interesting and you mentioned before we started about um you're working on you're working on an app maybe you could tell us a bit about that
2: Yeah, we are. So the government has a contact tracing app. I guess at this stage, it's fair to say that uh, ours is coming out later than most other countries. um, That may partly just be because it's taking us longer to do. I'm not involved on the kind of inside logistics of this. Mm. Uh, It's also partly because we're trying to get a kind of second mover advantage, which I think Ireland has actually had throughout this crisis so far. Um, We've looked quite carefully at what's going on in other countries, and I think tempered our responses according to what we can see. And I think that happened, that's happened with the app as well, where data privacy concerns led the developers to change the way the app was being done. So it's gone for one of these kind of decentralized models where all the data was held on the individual phones, this kind of stuff. Anyway, I mean, our involvement in this was just that um, the department thought it would be a good idea to pre-test this app behaviorally. And what we mean by that is um, the app has multiple uses. So getting across what it does and what its usefulness is to members of the public who are trying to persuade to download and use it, obviously has a kind of behavioural element to it. They've got to understand what the point of it is. They've got to be willing to engage with it. They've got to not be anxious about having it on their phone and what it might be doing and so on. Mm-hmm. So we now are running a trial where we're testing about eight different versions of this app where we've put behaviorally informed um, pieces of information together for what the app does and how it works in the hope that we will discover which of them are most effective. Getting people to um, understand what the app does, how it works, and hopefully be willing to, to then use it. Um, you know, I, I'm not an epidemiologist, still less am I an app expert. I don't know whether this app could be effective or not effective, but I do know that it's got a better chance of being effective if it's framed in a way that allows the people who are using it to make a more informed and confident decision about what they want to do with it. So that's what we're testing and we'll see how it goes.
1: Just, okay, one final thing then. It's perhaps something that's on my mind in terms of coronavirus is that when we're emerging from the lockdown, I don't know if you have any of your research can give insight into this, but it seems that managing fatigue is, is an issue. And I wonder, is the rate of... of um, relaxation of restrictions is there some sort of a a trade-off but or does the potential for fatigue does that have an impact on perhaps how you should manage um the lockdown although you said before that um Irish people tend to have a very long run view and they're quite patient so perhaps it may be less of an issue but I wonder is is this is this potential for fatigue something to worry about and something that could be incorporated in how the lockdown is managed
2: so the fatigue issue is really interesting. I mean, you asked the question earlier and I answered it in terms of the expectations, um, where what I was essentially saying is it looks actually like on average people are prepared to be really quite patient here.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I have to say there is not any strong behavioural evidence for any idea of behavioural fatigue or lockdown fatigue. Um, there is not a lot of strong evidence for it. Mm-hmm. Um We are, however, common sense tells you there's got to be something there, and we are all experiencing it. I mean, I'm heartily sick of this lockdown, and I bet you are too. And Mm -hmm. I bet anybody who's listening to this is as well. I mean, it's a pain. It's it's boring, um, and we want to get back to some kind of life that is not so restricted. And so in that sense, there obviously is a thing called behavioural fatigue. One of the things that is interesting, though, is while that is a feeling that we all have, and it's clearly a kind of motivator, We can see remarkably little evidence, actually, of people breaking restrictions because of fatigue. Um, And it may be that they start to, but there's not a lot of evidence of that yet. It becomes more problematic, one suspects, when the restrictions themselves are more nuanced. I mean, when we're all kind of in it together to try and flatten the curve and just stay at home and the message was simple... Uh, And there weren't so many kind of what we call marginal behaviours, which is to say a behaviour where you look at it and go, I'm not sure whether I should do this or not. Where there's fewer of those, you've got fewer opportunities to kind of push the envelope. And if you are desperate to be doing things, to make excuses and say, Oh yes, actually, go on, just do that, that's okay. You know, Um, as we come out of lockdown, that becomes a a more prevalent thing, and it may be that some idea of fatigue will will really kick in. If you go back to what we were talking about right at the start about um, public goods games, it is remarkable actually how long cooperation can sustain itself provided the group of people who are trying to achieve the best social outcome see the benefit of what they're doing. Mm. So people will continue to make sacrifices mentally for quite long periods of time, provided they can definitely see the benefit of what they're doing. And what that makes me think is, yeah, fatigue may be a problem. I'm not saying it's not a problem. It may well be a problem. We're all feeling it. But it, how much it impacts on people's behaviour may depend to a very great extent on the degree to which we can see how we're coming out of this. The feedback, in other words, that ordinary citizens get about how well it's going and what the risks still are. And if they can still see that collective behaviours are vital to keep us on track. So that will get really interesting as the numbers start to come down and we're bound to get pockets of infection here and there and there's going to be big issues about whether we can keep them under control. How that feedback gets back into the public domain and affects ordinary people's worries about how the whole thing is going, Mm. I think is going to be really, really important. And we've not got to that stage yet. We're starting to get there. We're coming towards the end of phase one. There's going to be a discussion about phase two. But of course, it's actually all going quite well at the moment. Mm. The numbers are continuing to look good because we're still getting the benefit of our previous good behavior what's going to happen when we start to see the impact of the loosening of restrictions over time and we start to feed back the data about how many infections are we causing now mm. as a result of what's changing in people's behavior we're going to get into a new game and i think at that point we'll see how much power fatigue really has but for now the evidence of it really having an impact is remarkably
1: small. That's, yeah, no, I think you hit the nail on the head there uh, regarding the feedback and the information and being aware. That's something that that definitely would be on my mind in, in terms of of, of of managing expectations. Um, okay, so maybe we could talk about some some general stuff. Um, one thing that I find very interesting about a lot of your work is that you do a lot of lab experiments, and I was involved in one of your, your price lab experiments way back in the day. And it was very interesting where you said it's very as as the name suggests it 's a very clinical experience as opposed to what a lot of a lot of economists would do where you have for for example lot of field experiments where you go out and you you actually change things that people do in people 's behavior and so you've argued for more recognition I suppose, of experiments, whereas a lot of traditional economists would see field experiments as the gold standard. Maybe you could tell us a bit more about why lab experiments, the, why they can be important, or what, what context they could be important in?
2: You're asking a very big question here. Um, <laughs> the, the, there is an entire literature on this, and it's large, but let me try and summarize what I think is the kind of two or three key points in my perspective. Um, it really does all depend what it is you're trying to measure and what effects you're trying to isolate and show. Mm. The lab is an extremely good place to get an idea of people's capability their psychological capabilities so and by the lab here, I want to be clear as well I mean we're doing a lot of our experiments during this period online and I would count online experiments as kind of they're like lab experiments we don't have the control we have when we actually bring people in and we kind of have them in an established lab but you know they're not field experiments they're people in an artificial environment we've just kind of decentralized the lab to them sitting in front of their laptops I'm going to count those in as well Mm. and if you are interested in what people are psychologically capable of and and specific psychological decision-making mechanisms, I actually think that the lab and online is a better place to study than in the field. And the reason is because you can design an experiment that perfectly isolates the decision that you're interested in and gets it free from all the noise that's in the field. Now, if you are interested in preferences... If you're interested in whether people will choose to behave one way or another, that's different. Measuring preferences in the lab is different. You can do it, but you might worry then that the preferences that people display in the lab are not the same as the preferences that they display when they go outside. Mm. If you're interested in capability, that's less true. So let me give you a simple example. Um, Supposing you wanted to prove, supposing you didn't know what was easier, additional long division. Right. Right. And I say, right, I want a scientific study to test which of these is the more cognitively difficult thing for people to do. Mm. Right. Now I'm going to argue a lab experiment, really efficient, quick and brilliant for that. I can prove to you in less than a day, that long division is more difficult than addition. Sure. Um, I'll bring some people in. I'll run a simple lab trial where I incentivize them to get some questions right. And they're going to struggle with the long division and I'm going to get a bar chart. And they're going to say, look at that long division is harder than addition. Now, when we test financial products and people's ability to understand financial products or energy products, we are doing exactly that. And the lab is the perfect place to do it because we can give people problems to solve where we incentivize them to try and solve them. We show if you describe the product this way, they have this misconception they can't compare to and find what the cheapest one is or find what the best product is or they don't understand this element of it, you know. We can do it really quickly and efficiently where we perfectly isolate what aspect of the problem is it that they're not getting. Mm -hmm. And we can test an intervention in those circumstances where we say, look, let's describe the product in a different way. And when we do that, do they then, for example, understand the energy efficiency properties of that product better? And again, we can control it perfectly and we we can do exactly that. Um, where we can see what people's capabilities are for what they understand, whether they can spot what's good value and what's bad value and so on. That's why the lab's the perfect place to do it because you have all that control.
1: Sure. Now, do you have problems then when you, for example, you're, you're analysing what behavioural aspects come into play when you're analysing financial products and then you have to go to the regulator and say, well, we found this, but we found it because we were comparing the prices of something, some sort of abstract uh, concept is it difficult to bridge that gap?
2: Uh, Yeah, it certainly is. I mean, increasingly we find that regulators get behavioural science and they understand it. And familiarity is the crucial thing there. I mean, once a smart person starts engaging with these experiments and starts realising what they do and how they work, Mm -hmm. our experience is that overwhelmingly policymakers get on board and see the point of them. But it takes some time. Um, You know, even kind of smart, experienced policymakers who've been working for a long time, I mean, they're so trained to think of research as being based on survey samples or administrative data of large samples they're getting them to understand the power of a lab experiment that might have only 100 people involved in it Mm. um, and to realize actually that it can still tell you really important stuff for policy it takes some time but usually they get it after a while Um, and increasingly we find there are people in government departments and state agencies who can see that you can draw really quite powerful policy inferences off experiments like this if they're well enough designed and yeah. that they're showing you something that's that's very straightforward i mean I, I would go back again to this thing of you know testing addition <laughs> versus long division i mean how many people do you need to do i need to show you a better addition than long division before you start to go oh do you know what addition is easier <laughs> than long division Absolutely. I mean, that's the kind of thing that, that we're doing and once you've seen a, a study with 70 or 80 people who are really really struggling to understand a particular aspect of a mortgage mm. when it's described one way but they get it when it's described another way well it's exactly the same. You start to say, well, look, you know, I, I can see there's an
1: effect here. Yeah. And it seems I remember one moment of my own PhD research when I was I did a, a stint in, in Berkeley and I saw John List ex- present an ex- an experiment, a field trial where he went out and was asking people their willingness to pay for different light bulbs and combined it with different uh, economic theory. And I thought this is this is really this is was really cool. I really liked it. But it's particular to that application particularly to that product i suppose whereas maybe your insight can be a bit more general but one thing that i wonder is even though it's more general and you set up the experiment is there an observer effect whereas the field experiment is in the natural environment the lab experiment is in perhaps a, a less natural environment and then you need to maybe account for that
2: yeah i absolutely yeah of course of course i absolutely agree with that so i mean we do do field experiments as well as lab experiments mm. um, it all depends what research question you're asking I mean, if you're interested in whether an intervention is going to be effective in the real world, Mm. uh, where it is an intervention that um, operates in an area where there are many, many other factors that are influencing decision-making, then a field experiment is is the place you need to do it because you need to know how powerful that effect is relative to the other influences on people's behaviour. So let me give you a clear example of that. I mean, if you're testing a label for the energy efficiency of appliances... Right. You could test a label in a lab and show that one label is more effective than another. Uh, when people are making decisions about what's the best thing to buy here and you've got them focused on two on a computer screen and say, well, I prefer that one because of this. You can do a lab experiment like that show that one label is better than the other. But you can then take into the field and discover that neither label is going to trump the many, many other bits of information that you know, on the shop floor are influencing the purchase of that appliance. Uh, what I can say about that, the field experiment is absolutely a vital component for understanding how powerful this intervention is for getting people to buy more energy efficient mm-hmm. appliances. But the label you want on the appliance in the field experiment is the one that in the lab experiment gave you the best answer. Ah, oh, right. Interesting. Right? So it all depends what research question you're asking. If you're asking the question which of these labels can people integrate into a purchase decision more accurately or more efficiently or with less cognitive effort? A lab experiment is exactly what you need. It'll tell you which label people can process better. It's not going to tell you how big an effect it's going to have when they walk into DID to buy a washing machine, right? You need a field experiment to tell you how it interacts with all the other complex things in people's purchase decisions. So the crucial thing to understand about these methods is it depends what the research question you're asking is. Now, where the field experiment thing bugs me is where people say, oh, you, you shouldn't be doing lab experiments because the field is, is the natural environment. Let's go into the field. And you see a field experiment where the label that's on the washing machine has not been tested in, the, in a lab experiment or has not been tested in a way that makes us confident that psychologically it's easy to process.
1: Yeah.
2: And then people write it up and say, oh, we did a field experiment. It turns out energy efficiency labels aren't, aren't very useful because they get swamped by all the other things on the shop floor. Well, that all depends what energy efficiency label you used. (laughs) If you're interested in what's the best label, the lab is a much better place to study it. So you need both. It all depends what question it is that you're trying to get an answer to. And I think as time goes on, people are starting to take a more nuanced approach to this. And they're starting to realise that behavioural science has multiple methods. And what you have to do Mm -hmm. is tailor the method to the research question you're asking. Um, but it takes time. Uh, we still do come across people who will just make these generalizations and say, oh, but field experiments are better than lab experiments because they're more natural. Lab experiments are better than field experiments because they're more controlled. Sure. Of course, both of these uh, sort of absolutist positions are not very smart when you think.
1: Absolutely. No, that's, that is very interesting insight, and you have, I'm convinced, so hopefully others are too. Um, okay, so I just saw some of your papers there. I was reading through some this morning, and one that really caught my eye was... Um, you had a commentary on nudging. And nudging, to me, seems to be like the poster boy for behavioural science. It's something that that, that the general person would be familiar with. But you're some of some scepticism when it comes to the application of, of nudges uh, for policy. I wonder, could you help give us some insight into that?
2: Yeah, I, this is quite tricky territory. So yes, you're right. Nudging is the kind of poster boy for behavioural economics. Um, if nudging is the poster boy, I think I'm probably the kind of, second generation alternative band that's trying to get people to pay more attention to another way of doing things um i mean i i was hugely enthusiastic when nudge was first published in 2008 i mean i I read it immediately and it was a really important breakthrough and our lab has benefited hugely from the whole nudging agenda Mm. but as time has gone on i've become more and more critical of it Um, And there are a number of reasons for that. But the primary one, which is probably the paper you've read in the Journal of Behavioural Economics of Policy, I'm going to guess, Mm. the primary thing is that at their worst, nudges are solutions looking for a problem. And I think if you do applied policy research, one of the things that you realise over time is that we can jump far too quickly to looking for remedies without diagnosing and understanding the problem well enough. Mm. And behavioural science, like any other science, Uh, fundamentally allows you to understand what causes what. And sometimes that means it allows you to run a study to decide whether a particular remedy or policy intervention makes an improvement. Does it cause an improvement? And you can use your science to study that. But before you ever come up with that remedy or intervention, your science can also be used to understand the behaviour and the system that you are worried about, that you are trying to improve. And my problem with nudging is a nudge, by definition, is a remedy. And my experience, the more I do behavioral science or policy, is that actually most of the work we need to do is not testing remedies. Most of the work we need to do is diagnostic, it's understanding why people behave the way they behave in the first place in the context.
0: You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry.
1: they can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com
0: slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
2: They're in and what is it about that policy context that is causing them to behave in the way that they do? Mm. Um, and that to therefore design a good informa- intervention requires the diagnostic work. Where this is absolutely at its worst, and I've seen this, is where you've got PhD students armed with nudges running around trying to find where to apply them. So I've learned that there's a behavioral lever called the social norm. You know, I've learned there's a thing called implementation intentions that makes people behave um, more towards their intentions if we ask them about it a particular way. They come with these nudges, and then they start looking around for a policy area for where can I apply this? Where can I use it? Um, it's like having a world where you've invented the screwdriver and you discover there aren't enough screws. <laughs> um, you know, and it's taken me a long time to really be able to put it in language that is as plain as that. But I see too much applied behavioural science where we have not thought through the policy problem that we are trying to solve and how the science can best be applied to it. And the result of that is we test interventions that are pretty weak you know, they might change things by a couple of percentage points. If we've got a big enough sample, we might see a statistic. You see the difference. And we go, oh, great, look at this behavioral intervention. Well, maybe if we're applying the behavioral science more thoroughly and diagnostically, instead of looking at a two percentage point change, we could design something in two years' time that will be a 10 percentage point change. Mm. And that's where I've got a problem with nudging, that it it, puts, it gives primacy to the solution, rather than the remedy, rather than the diagnosis. What that paper's trying to do is to slow us down a little bit and make us be a little more methodical in how we tackle policy
1: problems. Sure. That, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and one comment that really struck me was where the nudge can maybe, t- to nudge you back onto the neoclassical framework of thinking about things. And that's, in my mind, as, as more traditional economists, that seems to make sense, but you make the argument and... Well, it appears you make the argument that well, there's much more going on here. You need to have a much more uh, holistic view of of the problem and and, and to figure okay, out. Okay, so, what...
2: so this is the a different paper. You're absolutely right. Uh, this is a journal of consumer policy paper where I worry about that way of thinking, where there is a an idea that people depart from the neoclassical model and that what we need is nudges that push them back towards the neoclassical model. Yeah. My problem with that, and I have a couple of problems with it, but the main problem with it is what behavioural economics is actually showing is that the number of influences on economic decision-making and their complexity can be very great. Mm -hmm. Um, So whether somebody invests in an investment product, for example, um, involved in that decision, I could name at least, and I won't go through them all now, but I can name at least seven or eight biases that science has shown, has shown convincingly and in a, in studies that you can replicate very easily, uh, affect that decision. So, I mean, straightforwardly, that can be things like projection bias and past performance. It can be optimism bias about people believing they're luckier than average. I mean, there's multiple of these things that can influence the decision. Mm. Now, I can come up with a nudge, and that nudge might push one of those back towards some kind of idea of truth. So if people have got, for example, a, a slightly odd perception Op- the too optimistic perception about the growth of a product, the likely growth of a product, I might be able to produce a nudge that pushes them back towards something that's more accurate. and we can say, well, look, that's got to be good, hasn't it? Mm. But the problem is, what does that nudge do to the six other phenomena that I've identified as being important to this decision? And that becomes much, much more difficult to determine. And in a way, where I get to with that, when I'm trying to solve policy problems, is to say, the problem here is that if you set the neoclassical model up as what we are aiming for, and you try to move people back towards it, you may actually not make better decisions, because it's an empirical question as to whether when you put a nudge in, the decisions afterwards are better than the decisions beforehand. And the fact that the nudge is designed to move you back towards the clinical, sorry, towards the neoclassical model, does not guarantee that the decisions afterwards are better than the decisions beforehand. It's an empirical
1: question. Because there are other aspects coming into play, yeah. Because there are many other
2: aspects coming into play. Mm. Yeah, absolutely right. And the more important, I think, the more important insight that behavioural economics is offering here is the psychology of economic decision making is really quite rich in many circumstances anyway. Not all. Sometimes it's really straightforward and the standard market model applies pretty well. But in many circumstances, and particularly the ones regulators worry about, about things to do with financial products, energy, health, where there are many things that you're trying to count, counterbalance in your decision making and you're thinking about trading off now versus the future and your own priorities and the rest of your families and so on. You know, where you're in a complex and rich psychological circumstances like that, mm-hmm. um, the neoclassical model, I think, trying to move people towards it is not a very helpful way of thinking. Because the psychology is too rich, and what you actually need to do is realise that what behavioural economics is doing is it's giving you methods for studying people's decision-making where you can set criteria for, is decision X better than decision Y? And you should go at that using your science and saying what your criteria are for why you say decision Y is a better decision than decision X, and why my science is diagnosing that something is causing us to go towards X rather than Y, and therefore I'm going to design an intervention that pushes us towards this better decision, why? Behavioural economics is telling you how to do all of that. Um, and the approximation that says, actually, no, we don't need to do all that and define what the better decision is. We can just say anything that moves us towards the neoclassical model is better, I think is a mistake. Mm. And that's what that paper is trying to get across, that we've got to get a more sophisticated view of what constitutes a good decision. And okay. um, um, the neoclassical model, my reading of the sciences, it, it doesn't tell you that. Okay. Um, and therefore, you've got to be a bit more subtle about thinking about
1: it. Okay, well, maybe we can just talk about some of your um, some of the applications that you've carried out um, with your unit. So a few things really struck me as it been really interesting. Uh, one paper, you looked at um, calorie consumption on a menu and you had some sort of setup where you could observe where people would view elements on, on the menu and the placement was the placement of the calories determined or had an influence on their choices. Maybe you could... It'd be interesting to know how how actually you conducted that experiment and and, and the result.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is one of our favourite studies, actually. Um, And it was a a huge effort to get it to work, actually. So we had people who were coming into the Institute to do studies with us for about an hour and a half. And they knew that. Uh, But we told them that the studies were going to be either side of lunch. And we gave them the opportunity to order their lunch off an online lunch menu. And they didn't know that this was part of the experiment. Now, of course, we did check that afterwards. We asked people what they thought was being studied today. And only one out of over 150 people or so uh, realized that we were actually looking at the lunch choice as part of the study. (laughs) So we got rumbled by one. But essentially, they didn't know that we were um, looking at their lunch choice. And what we'd done was we had them doing an experiment where we were tracking their eyes. So we have an eye tracker now in the lab, uh, which make, basically is a very high-resolution infrared camera that can tell exactly where you're looking based on the ratio of your pupil to your iris. Mm. Um, it's a nice piece of kit. Yeah. Um, and we have people who were doing a study where they knew we were tracking their eyes. And they were doing the study, and they were finding that. It's very non-invasive. You wouldn't even know it's there. There's just a little black box underneath the screen. So you pretty quickly forget that's happening anyway, and you get involved in the task and so on. And at the end of it, the experiment said, oh, I'm just going to pop out, be back in a few minutes. While I'm out, you can order your lunch. So, of course, what we did was we carried on tracking their eyes while they ordered their lunch. And unbeknownst to them, they were also in a little mini-randomised control trial where we were manipulating where the calorie information Mm. was on the menu. So, actually, first of all, we were manipulating whether there was calorie information. So there was a control condition where people didn't have the calories of the choices on the menu. And we then had two conditions, one where the information was supplied in between the food and the price, and another where the calorie information was put just after the price. So if you think of a sort of standard menu with the description on the left and the price on the right, uh, the calorie information was either put bang in the middle in between the two of them, or it was put in a separate column immediately after the price on the right-hand side. Now, not only could we see obviously what they ordered, uh, we also uh, measured what they ate, so we collected this data over a period of months where some poor research assistant, um, we were terrible for abusing research assistants in the lab. Um, some poor research assistant was literally scrambling around getting leftover food out of bins to weigh it. So we, <laughs> we, we weighed people's lunch before they ate it and we weighed the leftovers as well. So we could see also what proportion of the lunch had been eaten as well as exactly what they'd ordered. Um, so that's how we did it. Um, we could also track their eyes and what we found um, was not what we hypothesised. So our hypothesis actually was that if you put the calorie information in between the description of the food and the price, it will be most effective. And the reason will be that people will find it harder to avoid, that what they'll do is they'll look... Most when you read a menu, you scan from the description of the price, and if you've got to go over the top of the calorie information, uh, you are more likely to pay attention to it. That was our hypothesis. We weren't alone in that. We've asked... Um, Multiple gatherings now of international food choice specialists, What well, they would hypothesize in these circumstances, and usually about three-quarters of them say that they think the calorie information would be more effective if it's in between the description and the price. As you will have worked out by now, that's not what happened. Yeah. It actually turned out that putting the calorie information immediately after the price was more effective. And what I mean by more effective is people ordered fewer calories and they also ate fewer calories. So in terms of how many calories people actually consumed putting that calorie information there was effective and that was important too because no one had ever done a trial like this in an Irish context that shows the calorie post essentially works which this trial does show. Um, but we also discovered this thing where you putting it just after the price is more effective and the eye track was terrific because the eye tracker gave us some real insight into why um, and I think that's really interesting that what appeared to be going on was that the primary things you care about is what am I eating and how much does it cost and you're using the calorie information as almost like a screening thing where you're checking it as well and what was happening was where you've got the calorie information immediately after the price it more it seems to more fit the natural order of your decision making That okay. you're going to prioritize what you're eating and the price but you're going to use it as this kind of additional screening device or check and actually having it just to the right of the price makes that easier to do so it was the opposite of what we thought. Right. It turned out that it was actually, it's, it's not a question of screening it out. You can screen it out wherever it is. It's a question, where is it most useful for you for the natural order of the decision that you're making? And that was why it was really nice to have the eye tracker as part of the experiment.
1: Wow, that—that that is really interesting. One thing that struck me is, I wonder, when you say screening, is it a case of if it's above a certain threshold, or oh, maybe I won't go with that because it seems to be very heavy in calories, or... Perhaps, I wonder, is there a relative effect as well? If you have one really, really high calorie option, then you might be, you think, well, this is high in calories, but it's actually, I'm doing okay. I'm I'm not not going for the really, really unhealthy option. Yeah. So
2: those are two very good questions. Uh, We can't be totally sure from the data we collected in that study. But uh, a couple of things, there. I mean, I, I suspect you're right that it probably was working more in circumstances where people were surprised how high the calorie count was and it made them look for more stuff. Uh, So, oh, could I go for an alternative because that's very high? So it may well be that there was a kind of threshold effect there. That would be hard for us to see on the setup that we have. It could well have been true. The other thing to understand about our study, which um, it was kind of set up so that there was a likelihood that we might get quite a large effect size because of the range of calorie options that were on the menu. So there was stuff that was low enough that was only a couple of hundred calories and there was stuff that went right up to a pizza that was over a thousand calories. So the range that was on the menu was also very large and very possible. Mm That how you calibrate your system according to the range of what you can see matters too, and I suspect that that was there as well. And again, we can't be sure about that because we didn't explicitly manipulate it. I mean, all the menus had the same range on it; it was quite a broad range, sure. and that
1: might influence the, the results as well. Yeah. Okay, so that yeah, that that is a really nice study. Um, another one that I saw here was you are looking at PCP car loans, and I think this is really popular nowadays. Everybody seems to be going for PCP car loan, and you found that perhaps people find it hard to understand uh, the, the different terms and conditions from a PCP car loan, which is not a surprising result. So one of the
2: things that we have pioneered in the lab is running multiple choice studies, where we literally have people answering multiple choice questions like you might have done at school about financial products. And we incentivize people. So essentially, you get paid for doing the study, and then for every question you get right, you get an additional kind of lottery ticket to win a prize. So the idea of that incentive, which was actually not my idea, it's was McGowan's idea, and uh, it's a really nice one, I think, because even the people who know that they're not very financially literate or that they're not, they don't know as much about financial products as others, they still have an incentive to get the question right because every question you get right, you get an extra ticket, whether you're winning a lot of tickets or a small number of tickets. <laughs> yeah. So you have an incentive mechanism where people can win these lottery tickets by getting the answer right, and we give people multiple-choice questions. Now, we did that for these PCP deals because our hunch was that people didn't understand them very well. Uh, and that turned out to be absolutely the case. People really don't understand PCP car deals very well. I'm not surprised by that. It took me about two to three weeks of reading about them before I truly understood how the product worked. Mm. Uh, so the idea that you know, people on a garage forecourt, when they're pri- this isn't even their primary decision, of course, their primary decision is which car to buy. Mm. And while they're trying to make that decision, they're also trying to make a decision about how to finance it. And it's a product that it's taking me two to three weeks to get my head around. What chance have they got of understanding it? Uh, I think the answer to that is not very high. Mm. Um, And our lab experiment primarily was designed to simply show exactly that. There are aspects of these deals that consumers do not understand. And the biggest one of those is not really understanding um, that you're acquiring anything. That in a PCP deal, it is effectively hiring a car over an extended period of time so that you are not actually paying off any kind of principal, you're not acquiring any kind of asset um, unless the second-hand car market does particularly well in which case you might have a bit of equity in the car left at the end of the deal and this was I mean we were just testing do people understand that is the financial arrangement that they're entering and the answer is no they don't I mean they, they treat it just like um, they would essentially a loan for a car And it's completely different because if it's a loan, you're actually owning and buying the car and that's your asset to own and having purchased it. And that's even true with a higher purchase after a period of time, of course. And you're making regular payments that pay off the asset just like you are with your house and with other kinds of loan. Um, And people really didn't understand that. And we could show that people didn't understand that.
1: that, And are there any common behavioural... I know there's many behavioural sort of biases that come into play, but are there ones that you've seen throughout all your experiments in this context, and maybe I know you've done stuff on, on mortgages and, or maybe uh, other types of financial products where you can see a trend of these. this seems to be a very common bias that seems to, to emerge in a lot of cases.
2: That's a, that's a really good question, actually. Um, and the answer is yes. Uh, so behavioral economists have thrown up all sorts of biases. I mean, the most famous ones, I guess, are things like loss aversion. You know, people waiting losses more than gains, and so on. But there's one that I think gets is less well known and gets less airplay for whatever reason. And actually, we see it come up time and time again. And ironically enough, um, it was essentially discovered by Amos Tversky who was Daniel Kahneman's long-term collaborator. Now, Kahneman won the Nobel Prize for Economics in 2002, famously, as a psychologist, for his contribution to behavioural economics. His longtime co-author, Amos Tversky, didn't win the prize because he died, and the prizes are not um, awarded posthumously. Mm. But the two of them worked together. Now, after after they ceased working together, Amos worked with some other people in the late 1990s and developed a thing called the competence hypothesis, which was essentially about ambiguity aversion. So ambiguity aversion is the idea that I don't like taking risks when I don't know the odds that I'm up against. Um, Explained in its most simple terms. So if I can't really evaluate what my chances are, I really don't like taking the risk. And what Amos said is that this is is actually um, a heuristic where people judge their own competence as a way of evaluating a risk. That if I so it isn't just that I can't get the odds of this is that it's how competent do I feel to make the decision? Now we see this effect come up time and time again. So what the original experiments show is if I don't feel competent to make the decision, I will be I will behave as if I'm more risk averse. So economists tend to think of risk aversion as just being a kind of underlying preference that people have. How averse to risks am I? You might prefer risks more than I do, or the other way around. This is a preference that changes between us. What Amos's work shows is that your willingness to take risks depends how competent you feel in the domain. And I think this is hugely important to loads of policy problems and behavioural change issues. So it is most simple. It's a way of thinking about switching. So the orthodox model says, you know, um, people should switch and they don't switch give them give them more information lower the switching costs and make the rational calculus one that favors switching and they will switch and then we do all these policy interventions that do this and it makes no difference people still don't switch and that's because that orthodox model is not right i mean it's of course helpful to reduce switching costs and provide people with better information but it doesn't work the behavioral economists then come along and they say well you know maybe a lot of the problem here is loss aversion that people have too much loyalty they stick with what they know they won't we actually over a period of time have really begun to think looking at multiple experiments and studies that the problem is people don't feel competent to make the decision so even if you can show it the problem in a way where it's pretty clear which is better value you might think and you've supplied all this information you're getting people over their kind of loss aversion things with whatever interventions to encourage them to switch and say look you really can go and be better off and you know you set up a market that's genuinely competitive but people don't have loyalty to you know, the old long-term providers, all the rest of it, people are still not switching. Or they're demanding, we typically find, if they can't see savings of at least sort of 20 or 30%, they're probably not interested in switching, which is huge in terms of price dispersion. Yeah, you know? And the reason is because they're worried about making the mistake. They don't feel competent to make the decision.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, now, we feel that that occurs a lot. It's not just in that domain. It's in other walks of life as well. I mean, even in things like, Um, you know, decisions over what transport mode to take or whether and how to be more physically active. Your own feeling of how competent you are to make a good decision, that you understand the domain in which you're making the decision well enough, drives a lot of behaviour. And if you understand that, then you start to realise that interventions need to work on people's confidence as well as what information you make available to them and what systems they interface with. How competent they feel to do it is going to really matter too.
1: That is very interesting because whenever I hear people like yourself talk about things, it always resonates quite well. And I can definitely see when it comes to electricity switching, it's something I'm very aware of, and I can see the benefits of doing it. But I, I can see what in other aspects of my life that I, I definitely don't make those decisions. And perhaps I wonder is a solution to outsource these sort of decisions to try and find some sort of advice. I, I know you have like um, online. Price, aggr- price checkers, but even some sort of professional service.
2: And just quickly on that, that's so interesting, because if you think about that from the perspective of the competence hypothesis, what it then tells me is, well, then the competence shifts. You then have to worry about, do people think they can use a price comparison site well? Okay,
1: well, that's a, that's a very difficult <laughs> and, question.
2: And yeah, but then you start to realize why it is yeah. that we make these things available and, the, and who it is who uses them and who it is who benefits from them and of course it's the people who feel they can use an interface like that more competently
1: yeah and i'm more inclined to use a price benefit site because i know the benefit of the, the price benefit site. so yeah you're sort of preaching to the converted a little bit um, <laughs> but um okay well i know we're, time is moving on and i don't want to take up all your time although i'm really enjoying the conversation one thing i just to, to wrap up is um Sometimes I feel like behavioral scientists, they're a bit like the enlightened. They have this sort of, they've reached enlightenment and they know a bit more about the world than the rest of us. Or or at least that's the the impression I might give. I wonder, are there aspects of your life that because of this knowledge of how we behave and how we understand our decisions that would have improved? Or even more interestingly, are there things that you still do that perhaps you know you should do you, should, you know you should change your behaviour, but you don't. And even, do you understand why, why, why you have this uh, behaviour that, that perhaps is, is not as beneficial as, as the alternative? Uh,
2: yes.
1: Sorry, so, I was a bit more complicated yes. than it should have been. No, it's,
2: it, it, it's, it's an amusingly personal question, don't worry. I mean, it, yeah, absolutely. Um, the difference between doing behavioural science and enlightenment, and there is a parallel there, because you are learning about yourself as you do this science. Um, And that is unavoidable because you start to learn things about how people behave and what causes their behaviour. And you, of course, start to see that you do it too. Um, But where it's different from enlightenment is the standard idea of enlightenment is that this will be genuinely life-changing. And the problem with behavioural science is that you realise that behaviour change is incredibly hard even when it's you and even when you think you have a pretty advanced understanding of the issue. So to give you a concrete example of that, um, I'm an awful optimist. Um, I mean, 80% of the population, roughly speaking, are too optimistic relative to reality. Um, I, you need to be careful what we mean by too optimistic there because they're also the happier people. Mm. Uh, so being a realist, about 10% of us are realists and about 10% systematic pessimists. In other words, the world turns out to be better than we expect it to be. Those people are more likely to suffer from mental health problems. Now, you actually want to be a sunny optimist. I am a sunny optimist Um, because you're happier, but you're also getting it systematically wrong, right? You you are too optimistic. I'm too optimistic all the time, uh, with the result that we take on work in the lab that we simply cannot deliver in the time space that we've said we can, or we take on a task that is too hard. Um, And I suffer from this, and it doesn't matter how much I know I suffer from it, how much I read about optimism bias, how much I understand how it works. I still do it, and I keep doing it. and then there's a bit of me, admittedly, that does say maybe that's part of why we've managed to expand and be reasonably successful. Because sure, we can't deliver all the things that we try to deliver. But we try to do a lot. Yeah, well, you, in the end, it does okay. You know? end up
1: doing more than you would have otherwise. I think. So <laughs> well, yeah, it's not know, a bad thing. So
2: maybe maybe it's not so bad. But um, it is extremely difficult to change these kind of behaviours. And you do get some degree of enlightenment in in the following sense that you do realise that you can intervene on yourself in beneficial ways. So I've become much smarter about setting myself reminders and I've become much smarter about starting things earlier than I used to because I suffer from the planning fallacy, which is to say that things always take longer than you think they're going to because when you start off doing them, you can't see some of the hurdles and barriers that are going to emerge as you start the task. So you have to build them into your planning for how long it's going to take you to do things. You start to realize that you can actually intervene on yourself quite successfully. So there are times when I can't change my behavior very easily. I'm not very really good at changing my own behavior a bit. I can make myself a bit more physically active. I can make myself eat a little bit better. But generally what you have to do is change your own environment so that when the crucial time happens, you behave in the way that your longer-term person wants you to behave.
1: Yeah.
2: And mostly that's what I actually do um so yeah there is a degree of enlightenment you can help yourself to make better decisions but it's not it's not, not easy, easy. Yeah. i mean I,
1: you don't you don't come down from the tree a changed person <laughs> no absolutely no uh no that's really interesting and it's, it's nice to get a bit of some advice for people i suppose in their own in their own lives so that uh, that fits in nicely um okay well pete we can i suppose we should wrap up because i know you're time constrained but thanks a million i really appreciate it uh it was great you're very welcome you're very welcome thanks very much to Pete for taking the time out of his busy schedule to discuss behavioural science with me I really enjoyed that conversation it's one of those conversations where I could have talked all day Um, I should give a special word of thanks to my two patrons who have helped in a small but very appreciated way towards keeping the podcast on the road if you get a chance please consider a five star Review an Apple of podcasts that helps introduce others to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Thank you and all the best.